You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the official podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We bring you the latest in national security every week, and today's episode is no exception. We're going to do a roundup of the latest news accompanied by the sharp legal analysis you've come to know and love us for. Today, I'm joined by Professor Bill Banks, Distinguished Professor and Professor Emeritus at Syracuse University College of Law, the author of numerous books and articles on national security law, regular guest in the cast, and chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Welcome back, Bill. It's nice to be back with you, Yvette, and I look forward to testing my knowledge of the news with you. Let's see what we can uncover. All right, lightning round, pop quiz, Professor. (laughs) Revenge of your students. Um, So let's jump in with COVID, the number one topic still for virtually any audience worldwide. According to the CDC, to date, we've had over 32 million cases in the United States alone and a tragic 578,000 deaths. But we have reason to be cautiously optimistic. Everyone over age 16 is eligible to be vaccinated right now. We've had 260 million vaccines administered to that age cohort. And we're expecting the FDA's authorization and CDC approval for children over the age of 12 to get the vaccine from Pfizer any day now. If you look at the CDC's graphs on daily reports, the rates of cases and deaths have dropped precipitously since the vaccines became available. But here's where the caution comes in. Vaccine supply is starting to outpace demand. And a recent Kaiser Family Foundation survey found that 25% of parents want to wait and see how the vaccine works before getting their children vaccinated. 18% plan to get their children vaccinated if their school requires it. And nearly 25% do not plan to get their children vaccinated at all. Without a change in attitudes, we may not achieve the herd immunity that will allow us to return to normal. And we're going to link to the sites for all of those statistics in our show notes as usual. But Bill, can you tell me, is this a national security issue? And are there some powers the Biden administration or state and local governments could use to incentivize or require vaccinations? So let's break this into two parts, Yvette. I think in the aggregate, There's no question that the COVID epidemic has been and remains a very serious national security issue. You quoted the statistics, nearly 600,000 Americans dead from a virus. 3,000 people were killed on 9-11. So the scope of tragedy is uh, beyond our previous expectations or our previous experience for any time more than a a hundred years ago, since the flu of 1918-19. And, you know, it doesn't matter that it's a virus instead of a a gun or a terrorist attack. It still has a dramatic effect on the well-being of the United States. uh, And therefore, it's a serious national security issue. We also have to bear in mind, as you do, that the pandemic is global. So that even though the United States is in relatively better position, uh, certainly than we were a few months ago or much less a year ago, there are many parts of the world where the pandemic is raging, including India, for example. And we're part of an international community, viruses travel. And if we don't support with through our national security uh, mechanisms and resources, the ability of these other states, large states in particular, like India, to get a better handle on the pandemic, our national security will continue to be threatened as well. 
As for vaccines and the effort to achieve herd immunity, I, I think that's more ephemeral. I think that even the leading public health officials have uh, recognized more recently here in the United States that we may not achieve that what we previously described as desired herd immunity from COVID in the United States, and then simply have to live with it for some indefinite period of time as we have with various strains of the flu, and that more than likely will continue to experience COVID, but at a very low rate relatively in the United States. I think mandatory vaccine dissemination is very problematic. I think the better approach and the approach that the Biden administration is following so far is to incentivize vaccine dissemination and uh, to incentivize individuals. Here in my community, I know that the county is, is offering all kinds of goodies with vaccines. If you come get a goodie, you get, uh, you, know, you get food, you get beer, you get donuts. And I think while some employers and universities, for example, may uh, require a vaccine as a condition of being a student or a staff or faculty member or as an employee. I think the government is uh, in a more problematic posture that attempts to demand vaccinations as a condition of citizenship, for example. And I think in the long run will be more effective if we simply incentivize vaccines and then build up our public health resources uh, to continue to deal with a relatively low level of COVID down the road. Got it. Yeah, some of those citizenship cases were, were really interesting. But you did mention our foreign counterparts and how they're managing COVID. And, you know, it is true that the United States doesn't exist in a vacuum as we're trying to solve this vaccination problem or this COVID problem. So there is a national security incentive for us to help out our allies and other, uh, you know, other countries with access to the vaccine and, and getting as many people in the world vaccinated as possible. Just to like quick, quickly recap the state of affairs at the moment, European countries are in various stages of lockdown following a recent surge in cases. And there's a particular hotspot in India, which itself is admitting that it's in a full-blown crisis. Uh, last week, it registered a staggering 400,000 cases of COVID in 24 hours and is the locus of one COVID variant that this week was classified as concerning by the WHO. So acknowledging this is a global problem, the Biden administration announced that it would support a waiver of intellectual property protections for COVID vaccines. Can you talk about the legal support for this waiver and what the policy complications might be? This is a pretty narrow mechanism in, in terms of its legal impact. Symbolically, I think it's potentially quite important because the United States, through the Biden administration, is attempting to, through the waiver, send a signal to the rest of the world that it wants to help, that it wants to uh, share the, the vaccine wealth, relative wealth of the U.S. manufacturers by making it more likely that other states can rely on the patented technologies inside some vaccines to further their own supplies. What that, the way that works is a little bit tricky this is a, a waiver that's directed by the United States Trade Representative to the WTO, the World Trade Organization. 
the World Trade Organization is, of course, it's a non-governmental organization, not part of the United States or the United Nations, includes most developed countries. And they do indeed implement something called the TRIPS Agreement that I think has been described on this podcast before, trade-related aspects of intellectual property. The TRIPS Agreement tolerates some compulsory licensing of IP, and its uh, patents have been permitted under the TRIPS Agreement. And indeed, there are uh, patents that have been approved under the TRIPS Agreement with respect to COVID. Uh, Some countries have already begun licensing their products under the TRIPS protocols. Uh, So the the idea now of the United States is to waive the protections for U.S. patents. Of course, it it sent off a a lot of disgruntlement in the corporate world, particularly among pharmaceutical companies, caused a couple of stocks to suffer a little bit. But it's probably a short-term blip in that respect and maybe more symbolic than real in terms of its impact over the the entire international community's capacity to develop vaccines and get its populations vaccinated. It is unprecedented, however. It's an important gesture, I think, toward a a solidarity in in a time of crisis, but it's, it's limited. It simply provides that countries will not be able to bring trade-related claims in the WTO against countries that issue compulsory licenses in the context of COVID-19. That's a long-winded way of saying that this isn't likely to amount to much legally. And of course, the trade representative works for the President of the United States. She, uh, Ms. Tai, clearly had the authority to articulate the Biden administration's position on this. The patents themselves, of course, are not issued by the White House or the trade representative. They're issued by the patent office, which is part of the Department of Commerce. I think uh, companies will probably engage in voluntary transfer of their knowledge to alleviate the global supply shortages that have now cropped up in several regions of the world. And that might be the greatest benefit of of this waiver. So I would just have a follow-on question about some of the concerns that the pharmaceutical companies are claiming, right, that if we do provide these waivers, then it will impact the supply chain. I think that's something that the Biden administration took into consideration, um, but I think that the humanitarian interests outweighed the logistical concerns. I agree with you, and I think that you know, they also see the, the trend line. The trend line is for the demand curve in the United States for vaccines to be moving downward, uh, while it's certainly on the uptick in some of the hotspots around the world. So I think supply is probably adequate. So even though we are on a path out of COVID, we're still here. We're still doing the podcast on Zoom. <laughs> and we're still affected by COVID, at least for the moment. Because of that, time has no meaning still. So we have not yet escaped the news black hole that is the 2020 election. Right now, we're following an extremely unorthodox review of the ballots in Arizona by a private company that's admittedly unpracticed in this type of work, is operating under shifting and opaque policies, and is quite willing to entertain um, bizarre conspiracy theories, including that the paper in the ballots is made of bamboo because it came from China. 
we've had several podcasts on election integrity and disinformation. Can you just talk about what the so-called audit exercise might do to what should be bipartisan efforts to instill confidence in our free and fair voting systems? Yeah, I think the the Arizona example is more like a circus sideshow. There's nothing of value, I think, going on there. And here in, in Arizona, where I've been for the last six months, I think it's regarded by many in the local media as uh, as a laughingstock and an embarrassment to the state uh, government there, certainly being followed closely. I think that the, the more serious matters that are going on around the country in terms of electoral reform and preparation for the next series of national elections concerned the state legislation that has been enacted in Florida and about to be enacted in Texas and one or two other states with more on the list of likely states to further restrict rather than enhance access to the ballot. It's all based on the same idea that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. And uh, those efforts have succeeded. That is not just a recount as is going on in Arizona now, which has no legal effect whatsoever. It's really a symbolic exercise. But the, the law has changed in Florida. The law will change in Texas to make it more difficult for citizens to vote. That's a serious threat, I think, to our democracy. And, and the only real legal counter to it, other than advocacy in states to try to overturn those laws or simply overcome them by providing ever more ways for citizens to get access to the ballot, is for Congress to get involved with the, their own Voting Rights Act, as we know. The, the Voting Rights Act that's been, been integral to US electoral successes for decades was effectively gutted uh, by the Supreme Court in some recent decisions so that Congress's means of affecting outcomes in state electoral systems is now quite limited indeed, but they have have it within their power to uh, enact some strong measures to make sure that no state laws would unduly limit voter access to the ballot. I think that's what we should be watching So far, there's not much uh, indication that those bills that have been drafted in the House and in the Senate are moving on a path to enactment, but uh, uh, it's early and we should watch for that. Yeah, it seems that there are also legal challenges coming at a quick pace to challenge those new laws in Texas and in Florida and other places where they're being considered. Right, there's a chance that some of those provisions will be overturned on the basis of free expression or state law, uh, voter protection laws. Yes. And it's it's inescapable, kind of, Senator Cruz was quoted today saying that the HR1 um, that you're talking about, the congressional, you know, fixes for some of these state bills um, would be the new Jim Crow. And so there is a huge overtone to this where it's not just well, one side is concerned about the other side gaining or retaining power. There is, you know, also our our really ugly history of voter suppression for racial minorities and other people who are disfavored by the electoral system. That's true. Very true. Good points. We have another topic alongside the 2020 election. Former President Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, 
recently had his home and office raided by the FBI and his electronics seized. The warrant apparently concerns the activities uh, that Mr. Giuliani undertook to have Ambassador to Ukraine Marie uh, Yovanovitch removed from her post and was a major issue during the first impeachment trial. This is not the first of Trump's personal lawyers to be under investigation. That was Michael Cohen, of course, and he testified in Congress as to Mr. Trump's alleged participation in a number of criminal schemes, which were later detailed in the Mueller report. Can you talk to our younger listeners about exactly how extraordinary this is? Um, What can we expect from the legal system for Mr. Giuliani or the former president? Well, it it is interesting and I think pretty noteworthy, particularly for listeners who haven't kept up with this side of the things concerning Michael Cohen, that Giuliani's had both his home and office records uh, raided by the bureau and had his devices seized. Uh, They don't do that every day and for just any old reason. So there's there's something going on here. We're not privy, any of us really, to what that might be yet, but it is likely, I think, given his role. That is, it's important to remember that Giuliani was not uh, an employee of the United States or uh, of the executive office of the president. He was a private lawyer advising the president on his own terms. So when he undertook to have Ambassador Yovanovitch removed from her post, assuming that he made efforts in that regard, he was acting as a foreign agent and he would have been obligated by the federal laws of the United States to register as a foreign agent under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA. We've talked about FARA on the podcast before. And it's entirely possible that even something as uh, mundane as foreign agent registration could trip up uh, Mr. Giuliani. Uh, and furthermore, if, he's, uh, if he did undertake those activities, if the, if the materials taken from his home or his, his electronic devices reveal that he did make efforts to impress upon the government of the Ukraine, then he may have also, because uh, that later then was a subject of investigation, he may also have obstructed justice in misstatements or lies that he told with regard to those episodes. So I think Jelani, uh, we'll see. Uh, he, he may be in some legal hot water. Uh, not so the former president, at least not in, in this connection, because of course the president can fire an ambassador on any day of the week for any reason. Uh, so he, he, the president is certainly former president, not in hot water about the termination circumstances of Ivanovich, and of course the first uh, impeachment concerned whether or not he had obstructed justice in that regard, and that tally came up short. Absolutely. And of course, like speculating about the uh, former president's legal jeopardy or not um, has not stopped the election chatter. I'm sitting in D.C. <laughs> or the D.C. area, and the news is already talking about former President Trump's influence over the 2022 midterm races and his chances to run again for the presidency in 2024. Given the unique way that Mr. Trump successfully leveraged social media for his first run, we were all really interested in hearing the outcome of the Facebook Oversight Board's review of his ban. To review, Facebook indefinitely suspended Mr. Trump's accounts following his incitement to violence during the January 6th certification of the Electoral College votes. The Facebook Oversight Board is a quasi-independent 
body that examines um, Facebook's moderation policies. And it said that Trump had clearly violated Facebook's terms, but that the sanction that Facebook levied against Mr. Trump and were arbitrary and its policies were not sufficiently transparent. Um, the Oversight Board has directed Facebook to review its decision on the suspension and come back with a final determination within six months. So Bill, there's already lots of beltway chatter around how crucial Facebook is to fundraising for elections and how crippling this may be for Mr. Trump's political future. But we're here to talk about the law. In a functioning democracy, is it appropriate for a private company to be so important to electoral success? What kinds of legislation are we likely to see around this issue? Now, this is a really uh, hard problem. It's one that does shine the light on the on the power of the private social media companies in our democracy. And I think, you know, Facebook looks bad, behaved badly here. And the, the review group, uh, the board, if you will, essentially just passed the ball back to Facebook and said, you know, you guys don't look so good here. You decide what your policy is going to be in the future and make it clear and apply it consistently across the board. In general, in our society, in our democracy, and in our legal culture, as you know very well, Yvette, the theory of free expression is that eventually good speech will drown out bad speech. Truth will drown out lies. We've seen several instances where that's not been so, but that's in a snapshot of time. Uh, we've tolerated Nazis marching in Skokie, Illinois. We've tolerated in our free expression enterprise all kinds of heinous expressive activities uh, simply because that's our model in the United States to have a free and open marketplace of ideas. If the former president was inciting an insurrection as he appeared to be doing on or about January 6th, then he's not protected by that model of free expression, but the kind of speech that he's uttered uh, over and over again before and after that, not many of which might contain misstatements or lies, is the kind of speech that we protect by whoever utters it and should be extended to uh, the former president as well as to the other members of society. So Facebook's got a big challenge here in deciding how to handle the former president, but perhaps more fundamentally, how to articulate a policy that can apply to all of us going forward. So let's stick around in the cyber realm for our next story, the Colonial Pipeline ransomware hack. Cyber criminals have shut the largest pipeline from Texas to New York down since last Friday, which experts say will begin to drive the price of gasoline futures up 2 to 3% in the near term and may cause an increase in prices at the pump. How concerned do we need to be about this type of thing? Is our legal system prepared for attacks like this? After all, haven't we been preparing for a financial 9-11 attack for decades and we're still, we still seem to be vulnerable um, to this? Where are we? I think this is a, an extremely serious national security matter, one that we have not taken seriously enough to date. Even in the last few days, it's become clear now that where the attack originated from a criminal group that may or may not have resided inside Russia, but the group tries very hard to demonstrate that it's not affili affiliated with Russia or any other state. They're, they're in it for money uh, and, and they're very successful at it. 
what what's been revealed by the colonial pipeline attack however is just how vulnerable our infrastructure is we've known this for years many of us have known this but regulators have not demanded that critical parts of our in infrastructure pipelines being one the electric grid being another submit their core components to a kind of regulatory oversight and a centralized system of controls to ensure that hackers can't easily bust in. Apparently the hack that occurred at Colonial Pipeline was a pretty elementary one, one that was easy for them to pull off, that caused significant damage to the systems at Colonial Pipeline and for which Colonial Pipeline had virtually no defenses. They shut down because they didn't know what was going to happen next. That is, they didn't know whether malware that the hackers had in their arsenal could be inserted to more fully infiltrate their system and literally shut down the pipeline or cause, for example, significant spills. They simply shut down out of an abundance of caution. It was, a, it was one of the few good decisions that they made. But the government has not insisted that those members of our infrastructure abide by a common code of cyber preparedness. We need to demand that. Apparently, the administration is planning to issue an executive order in the coming days to further elevate our preparedness for cyber attacks of this nature. Uh, but we'll have to see. We have, uh, we have a more than 200-year-old history of not demanding that the private sector adhere to federal standards for safety in many areas. And I'm afraid this is one, and it's going to have to change. Can we talk about like why it's so sclerotic, the progress and what we can do to kind of, you know, is it is it gonna take a cyber 9-11 before we really start investing and paying attention in it? I tell you, this pipeline attack was, was very nearly a cyber 9-11. If this had been on the electric grid and, and it had been a little bit more expansive, we could have had a shutdown of, say, the, from Miami to, to Boston uh, for an extended period of time. It's not that far away. I think there are two problems. One is that much of the information that would be shared with the federal government is proprietary. And the companies are simply fearful of being compromised. The second thing, uh, or the second major impediment, I think, is that we live in a federal system. And our utilities and our uh, other parts of our infrastructure, for the most part, are regulated uh, in 51 different jurisdictions in the United States, in 51 different ways, by public utilities commissions and other boards and agencies that all have their own marching orders, their own authorizations. And while they've cooperated, for example, with uh, FERC and other federal regulators, they're not bound to FERC edicts or FERC rules for the most part. So I think our federal system also gets in the way. Final thing I'd say uh, about this is that We've done a tremendous amount to improve our, our cyber uh, preparedness in the last decade, but probably 80% of our investment has been on offense as opposed to defense. We're really good at going after the other guys. 
and it making their, their lives difficult and it lashing out at the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians or the North Koreans, but we've not done a good job at all at protecting our own stuff. Absolutely. And finally, speaking of Cyber 9-11, this is our first recording since President Biden announced a date certain to withdraw all U.S. combat forces by September 11th, 2021, exactly 20 years since the Al-Qaeda attacks on our homeland. National security experts everywhere along the ideological spectrum, from former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, have warned that we will need to re-enter Afghanistan at some point in the future if we withdraw um, at this time. What are the implications of, of this withdrawal from a legal standpoint? I think, you know, I, I'm glad that I'm only asked to, to address briefly the, the legal uh, issues here because the the policy, pragmatic and diplomatic and strategic issues are enormous. Uh, and we could talk for hours about them. But the legal issues, I think, are pretty simple. We're still in an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda. So the original AUMF that was enacted uh, you know, just a few days after 9-11 isn't going anywhere just because we withdraw from Afghanistan. It, uh, one of the most notable things about that that post 9-11 AUMF is that it did not specify a battlefield. There was no territorial boundary. So I think the end of an official role in Afghanistan by US armed forces is not significant with respect to it. I think because we are at a moment now and we have a new administration, there's a good chance that the Iraq specific AUMFs may be repealed because they're no longer necessary. They have no operative effect. The other legal consequence that will be interesting to follow now is uh, what effect the withdrawal from Afghanistan has on the continuing detention of those who are at Guantanamo Bay. Will the absence of a war in Afghanistan, absence of an armed conflict, affect the legal rights of the detainees or the authority of the United States to continue the detention facility there. Bill, I want to thank you so much for looking at the news with me through the lens of national security law. I know our listeners found your insights very valuable and interesting. We'll be back with you next week with more content. As always, we'll hyperlink the laws discussed and references that we cited on today's topic in the notes to the podcast. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments and feedback because we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at ABANATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And the Standing Committee will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on these fast-moving legal developments. And don't forget that lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll see you next week. Stay safe and get your vaccine. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 